Money FM 89.3, best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. This is Money and me. I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. We saw the S&P stumble as hopes over Moderna. Uh, and its COVID-19 vaccine seemed to sink yesterday with so many questioning the trial reports from Moderna. In the U.S., the Nasdaq is tightening rules on listings, which could see Chinese firms delisted. How is this going to possibly escalate? existing trade tensions and it's been a few weeks since oil's historic drop how is one of the world's most crucial commodities faring i welcome arun pai chief strategy officer at flow to the discussion good morning arun how are you i'm very good michelle how are you i'm doing well do you tick tock arun uh, no, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm asking, because, and neither do I, by the way. But stocks in the world's most valuable startup has changed hands recently at a price that suggests its value has risen more than 33%. And I am talking about TikTok's parent company, ByteDance. Trades in the secondary market are showing ByteDance has a valuation of more than 100 billion US dollars. What do you make of its rise, Arun? Crazy, huh? Like you would have thought that the whole private market space, especially after, you know, the whole host of names, but especially WeWork debacle, where it was valued at $45 billion one day and literally, I think, uh, at SoftBank's last uh, quarterly presentation this week, it was valued down to like $2.5 billion, so like 5%, give or take, of the company over the course of two, three months. Um, it's interesting, and you mentioned 100 billion for ByteDance. Mm. Some secondary shares were even traded at close to like 140 billion, in fact. Oh. Now, you know, all of us who are working from home, and maybe not you and I at least, but at least a bunch of teenagers and Gen X's or Gen Y's, I, I keep lost, I lost track of the alphabets. Uh, they are using ByteDance a lot more, right? So, in terms of user growth and uh, people actively being involved in the app, the numbers have skyrocketed. A couple of big question marks, though, is have they been able to monetize it uh, so far? Uh, The answer is no. Uh, So it is a journey, right? Like people had a lot of question marks about, uh, you know, Facebook, for example. Uh, They've got a number of users. How do they go about monetizing it? Because way back in the day, they claimed that they won't even be putting up any advertisements. But now they've branched into the payment space. They set up like a SME merchant uh, marketplace also uh, within their ecosystem, bought WhatsApp, bought Instagram. They've created a full ecosystem. Will ByteDance be able uh, to create the same? Uh, you know, the jury is still out in that one. But to be valued at such a massive number can only mean there is just so much amount of capital still sloshing around in the marketplace with fewer and fewer options to go to. Uh, fixed income is obviously giving you close to 0% interest rates. Equity markets on the public market space, we are obviously seeing uh, very elevated valuations over there. In the private market space, a number of companies have already gotten bust or the business models of especially the whole sharing ecosystem thing like uh, you know, car sharing or uh, apartment sharing has now gone down the drain because of covid so you have a very few options to put in a truckload of money 
And that's where people are running to. So interesting. I was looking at its really big boy valuations uh, for ByteDance. It puts it in ballpark uh, of the world's biggest public companies, puts it ahead of rivals like Twitter and Snap, but still behind Facebook Inc. And perhaps uh, if you know Chinese companies are going to have to grapple with rising scrutiny from Washington, it's going to keep the distance between the two uh, significant. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the biggest question mark, right? Like they've had rapid growth in uh, countries around Asia uh, and to some extent even in the, US, in the U.S. markets too. But it will really depend on, especially I think the run-up to the November elections in the U.S. Because it's become such a massive topic and there's bipartisan support in a way uh, within the U.S. ecosystem of literally just being completely anti-China, I think that rhetoric is going to increase substantially. I think there'll be a lot more uh, concrete measures that are undertaken in the U.S. to try and control the growth and rise of Chinese uh, companies. And that is going to affect valuations in the long run, because at the end of the day, the U.S. is by far the world's largest economy, and it has the biggest wallet, right, at over like $20 trillion. Uh, If you really want to get to that scale of 100 plus billion, 200 plus billion dollars, you need to have a captive U.S. market. You know, all this, ten- all this focus on, on U.S.-China trade tensions, uh, one more nut uh, twisted in the mix, a bolt twisted in the mix. What do you think about uh, Nasdaq tightening rules on listings over in the U.S., which could see Chinese firms delisted? Reuters reporting, on the contrary, that Chinese companies are being encouraged to list in London under a Stock Connect scheme so that they strengthen overseas ties in the wake of COVID-19. So all this attention on U.S.-China trade ties, but I was reading about how Europe-China trade ties are even more significant. So anyway, what do you think of Nasdaq's move and what impact this is going to have on China-U.S. tensions, tightening the rules on listings? Oh, uh, absolutely, right? Like, I genuinely feel that up till November, at least, uh, definitely Trump, just to appease his voter base and making this into a massive political issue, is going to institute all sorts of new regulations and ways to curb Chinese growth. And the, big, the best and biggest way to do that is obviously to try and restrict capital that funds this growth. And a lot of Chinese companies, you know, if you really want to raise a sizable amount of capital, mm-hmm. the US and NASDAQ, if you're a technology company, uh, is the place to go. So I think this is just the first step, or I would say it's probably like the fifth step or 10th step already, given that US-China relationships were already deteriorating over the past about, say, a year to two years' time, I think that's just going to be uh, worsened over the next five to six months. In terms of Europe, though, uh, you know, the UK having detached itself from Europe through this whole Brexit uh, at the beginning of the year Mm. is doing an extremely smart thing, right? Like trying to, it's all a massive game of chess going on in the world's political ecosystem where the UK realizes that they might have Uh, to take a massive step back from a very close ties with Europe, might as well try and side with uh, Chinese companies, wherein it will help their entire ecosystem, right? Because if you have companies like ByteDance, a couple of other larger private tech companies, uh, be it JD Logistics or something, uh, take advantage of the fact that because there's so much volatility going on in Hong Kong uh, and obviously worsening relations in the U.S., 
where's the other financial center uh, to take its place? Tokyo and Singapore, uh, and especially Singapore for equity markets, is nowhere nearly large enough. Uh, London's the only place left. Great, try and attract these companies over there. Try and attract a bunch of investors and fund managers who were potentially looking to leave London and go and set up shop in uh, Geneva or Frankfurt or Paris. Uh, you know, stay on shore, stay within the UK. You have a lot of interesting opportunities to invest via the UK market. So it makes a lot of sense from UK's perspective. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think China and the US, at least definitely from China's perspective, they really would have to extend the olive branch out to the US and hope that until at least the November election, things are not deteriorating substantially further from the current level. Chatting with Arun Pai in Money and Me, we have to talk about Moderna, Arun. If you look up that phrase, stocks rally on vaccine hopes, a lot of entries turn up. Some are saying that, you know, the, the Moderna fiasco um, is showing how markets run on storylines. We like narratives. If you can express uh, what a stock can, can be doing in, in a story, knit it together, you have a chance of making the sale. So um, we we still don't know. Jury's out on Moderna. It's findings, while still small, based on sample size of 45, could still turn out to be a breakthrough. We just don't know yet. But the market glow over the results seems to have faded. What do you make of the company's valuation? You know, honestly, Michelle, this goes directly into my too difficult to analyze pile. Because exactly (laughs) of the points that you were mentioning, it's truly impossible for a person who does not have an advanced degree. And even then, you know, you are looking, sure, the addressable market size is basically 7.5 billion people. You charge X amount of dollars for that, be it through government subsidies or yada, yada, yada. Great story, right? Like, as you were highlighting. But the amount of analysis and due diligence required before you can start, even start to inject even a tenth of the world's population or a hundredth of the world's population or a thousandth of the world's population with a vaccine without completely being sure of the after effects is something that is way too early to tell. And the kind of run-up, sure, you know, like people see green shoots and they start investing truckloads of money. The last about a month or I'm looking at uh, brokerage numbers, like uh, co- companies like Robinhood, E-Trade, uh, basically all these discount brokerages in the U.S., Zerodha in India, uh, and a whole host of other ones across the world they are seeing millions of new accounts being created because potentially you have a bunch of people just sitting in, quote-unquote, working from home. Mm. And what's the next step? Open up an investment account. I am seeing these stories in financial media outlets. Let me put in some money. What's the worst that can happen? And then that feedback loop takes place where you put in something uh, on a gamble and you know red turns up or black turns up in the case of like a roulette and a casino table. And you see that you're making a little bit of money, you put in some more money, and that's extremely scary, right? So I'm, I'm very, like, it, it makes, uh, in retrospect, seeing the number of new brokerage accounts, seeing the number of massive number of new retail investors that are coming into this space, pumping up these storied stocks, uh, I'm a bit more apprehensive, to be honest. I, I think as a prudent investor, uh, you know, stay within your circle of competence, And I genuinely feel that in the case of companies like Moderna, the number of people who truly have the competence to understand 
the business model and understand uh, how the company will eventually, or how it will make money, what the status of the vaccine is, is extremely, extremely slim. So would be very, very careful. Yeah, you need some advanced maths there. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I was just reading how, you know, all these accounts, trading accounts are being open because a lot of people, in lieu of betting on sporting events, they're looking at the stock market as a place uh, to do as what you mentioned, you know, uh, these easy <laughs> bets. And that's just a very scary, scary thing to think about doing. But on that, I mean, that doesn't mean that investors shouldn't try to keep learning and educating themselves. I mean, that's what we're all about here. And on that point of, you know, sometimes the, the details being a little bit too difficult for, to grasp. Help us understand what's going on with these buybacks. So during the 2008 financial crisis, um, you know, we saw Wall Street banks, other financial institutions come in to help institutions that were seen as too big to fail. Uh, it seems like the help that is going to be given out for institutions is unlimited from the Fed, right? I mean, it seems bottomless. But is there a problem then with the investor trying to understand valuations, uh, this idea of PPS metric? How can investors figure out the value of stocks when there is this much government intervention? Uh, You know, you hit the nail on the head, Michelle. It is extremely difficult in in an environment like this to analyze what a stock true worth really should be. Because conventional metrics of price to earnings, price to sales, uh, free cash flow discounted back down to today, uh, it's it's all up in the air, right? Because we've never undergone such a massive uh, transition in how the government is involved, uh, a massive health epidemic. This is not your traditional crisis, your traditional economic crisis where banks' balance sheets are potentially uh, a bit weak, uh, where you have a certain, maybe an over-leveraged fund like a LTCM uh, collapsing, and hence you have like margin squeezes uh, across the industry, or even uh, cases like uh, oil collapse. This is something that we truly have no idea what the long-term implications on demand for a number of products will be. Uh, will there be certain winners in this space? Most definitely, right? Like you're seeing stocks, especially in the technology space, uh, shooting higher. Uh, valuations are through the roof for uh, your FANG. Uh, you can throw in Zoom over there. You can throw in other work from home, other productivity softwares, etc. But it's something to take a step back and see whether from an investor perspective, on a risk-reward basis, does it make sense to get into the market at this point of time. And you're dealing with a whole host of conflicting uh, messages. You know, you, you brought up the point about buybacks. Buybacks was a massive tailwind uh, over the course of the last 10 years, which propped up stocks to a large extent. Why is that the case? You had interest rates at basically close to zero, uh, pretty much across the world, which obviously incentivized corporations, be it investment grade all the way to high yield, to try and issue as much debt as possible. Then throw in that, uh, it throw uh, the fact that executives are potentially misaligned with shareholders uh, because they are provided by these massive ESOPs or employee stock options 
to try and prop up their share price. Share prices vis-a-vis what the company or the business actually does can truly deviate from each other for an extended period of time. So you had executives who issued a bunch of stock uh, because of low interest rates, buying back their stock, which directly meant because the number of shares outstanding in the company is smaller, you will tend to see price appreciation in these stocks. And we saw that massively. Are they to be completely blamed um, for that? Like, you know, you've seen all these headlines of Boeing having bought back $35 billion worth of stock the last 10 years. Mm. And now suddenly they're going out trying to raise, and they have raised, but at least like a month back, they were going hat in hand to the government requesting for something like $50 billion. Are they completely to blame? I don't think so. Uh, Purely because of the fact that no one could have anticipated a crisis like this that led uh, revenue to be going down to zero. Not, you know, loss in profits or something, but genuinely like revenue crashing to zero. Could they have been a lot more prudent? Absolutely. And I would hope that uh, all this money that's being provided by government to basically semi-nationalize, and I hate, you know, the U.S. at least hates to use this word nationalization, Mm -hmm. but it is in kind of a way, it is in a way, uh, that's what's happening. I would hope that a lot of handcuffs are attached to those grants or loans or uh, injections by the Fed uh, to ensure that uh, companies, employees, and shareholders in who are especially who have a long-term interest in mind are taken care of, not the short-term punters or short-term hedge fund managers. Well said, well said. All right, looks like FANG stocks are up there when it comes to setting new highs. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix. Uh, But what is on your stocks to watch list, Arun? So, you know, just uh, for a second before going into that, when you mention FANG stocks are at an all-time high, absolutely. But all a substantial portion of the other companies are undergoing massive losses and only because of basically, you know, the Fed support and the Treasury support and government support across the world are propping up their share price to some extent. And that is something that I am extremely afraid about, especially on the SME space. Mm. Because at the end of the day, if you're a public company, you need demand for your product. And where does demand come from? From your average Joe, your average uh, neighbor next door. Who employs that person? In most countries, if not all of them, 60 to 80% of the workforce is employed by SMEs. And SMEs are the ones that are struggling right now because, not to blame governments per se, Mm. and, you know, especially governments like the Singapore government is trying their level best to assist them. But it's just a very, very difficult problem. Uh, How do you go about lending money to and a small amount on a relative basis of 100000 to say like four $5 million. When you approach a Boeing, giving them $40, $50 billion and having a very bespoke contract set with them is relatively straightforward. How do you go about doing that at scale to avoid fraud, to avoid all, a host of other operational issues that mm. get involved with SME? It's tough. So while, uh, you know, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, I guess, the stocks that I'm looking at, uh, I I need to be extremely certain that 
if and when things do do go poorly, which I sadly envision uh, will be the case, especially when SMEs start to fail over the next a year to two years, uh, it'll be companies in that realm. And that's something that sadly no one truly knows right now, right? Because look at the number of cases, like look at China and South Korea. Two poster uh, children of com- companies that managed to control the virus. But in Korea, you know, they had to lock down a whole bunch of districts because in some one person uh, who went about going about to like four or five clubs uh, basically led to 10 or 15,000 people getting locked down. Northeast China, the same thing, which in, surprisingly was due to a new strain. So suddenly now you have 100 million people basically going back down to lockdown conditions. How do companies, especially SMEs, mm. make long-term capital investment decisions when they are not sure what the long-term implications are? How do you keep uh, employees on your fixed payroll if you have no idea whether you might have a shutdown for another month or something in two weeks or in two months' time? And that can have massive issues in terms of demand. I hope it doesn't end up like that, but there is still uh, a large, uh, there is a decent possibility of that happening. And is an investor compensated for those risks in the current valuation? Mm. I sadly don't think so. And that's why I'm being a lot more apprehensive of investing money right now at these frothy valuations. All right. It's pretty dark money and me today, Arun. <laughs> I'm sorry, Michelle, but I think it's important that, you know, people are seeing a lot of data uh, that's coming out, you know, over the course of the last two weeks or say a month, and they're seeing, oh, great, you know, we are through this crisis. But there are two things to note, right? One is the numbers in April were absolutely abysmal, like you were at the lows. So even if stuff comes back by 10, 20, 30, 40 percent, mm-hmm. it's from a very, very low base level. And how do you go about valuing stocks, right? It's at the end of the day, it's the amount of profitability of a company that you can envision over the next, say, 5, 10, 20 years, and you present value that back down to today. If you look at companies that, uh, you know, were having a profit margin of, say, like 5, 10, 15% even, pre-COVID, so say in 2019, but then suddenly you drop their revenue by even, say, 10 or 20%, what will happen to those profit margins? How, what is the ability of a company to be able to manage its costs to such a large extent that even if their revenue goes back to 75 or 80% of pre-COVID levels, what will happen to their bottom line? And that's something that's not easy because think about the secondary effect of, you know, how do you achieve cost savings? Obviously, through technology. So great. We've already seen tech stocks run up a lot. Mm. But the other way is to cut costs. Mm. And a lot of costs of a lot of these companies are obviously salary Mm. employment. And once you, you know, cut employment, then their demand obviously drops. And at least I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone who's spending money like the way it was back in, say, middle towards end of 2019. People are definitely taking a bit more of a cautious approach. So it's something to be seen. I'm not a doomsday over here. And I think in the truly long run, you know, I genuinely feel that things will be fine. Uh, you know, we've got a massive propensity of 
getting over crises, and we've seen a lot of bad things in the past hundred years. Yeah. But is an investor compensated for those risks in terms of valuation today? I think it will be, you know, a, a true value investor will be a bit uh, hard picked to find those hidden gems. Okay, yeah, we're always looking for those hidden gems here, Arun. And I was looking at Apple Maps, and they're showing that uh, in U.S. driving is nearly back to pre-COVID levels. People heading back to the roads. China is seeing first-time car buyer sales moving up. Could this be a trend in the making? You know, consumers preferring segregated mobility in a car to keep social distance. You know, that is exactly one space that seems to be doing really, really well because people are afraid, as you mentioned, of going into a train or the public transport. And so you're seeing a lot more people buying cars, especially secondhand cars. So, you know, it, more, like, more private dealers in the space are definitely seeing a massive tailwind uh, where they claim that, you know, the number of inquiries is like three, four times that of last year. Forget, you know, COVID of last month, but I'm talking about like last year when times were good. So that's one great thing. Uh, the electric car space, it's refreshing to see that people are, you know, given the environment right now, you look outside your window. Uh, I guess we are lucky in Singapore to not have that bad uh, pollution level, but all these memes and other stuff that's going around social media where people in India close to the Himalayas, after like 40 years, are finally seeing the mountains from their village oh. 30 kilometers away. Mm. Uh, and obviously there are a bunch of fake memes of seeing dolphins in Italy and all of that, <laughs> but we can forget about that for now. But it's great to see that people are appreciating the fact that, uh, you know, all the negative things and all the bad things that COVID has brought upon us, uh, the environment is something that they should be looking up to and taking control of and taking care of. And you're seeing electric car sales uh, not having such a massive drop as compared to the traditional gasoline uh, car, car sales. So I'm hoping that that trend will continue. But sadly, from an investor perspective, Tesla is obviously the number one car in this space. Is the valuation attractive to invest when it's trading at $815 uh, at close to like $150 billion market cap? Sadly not. But it's definitely something interesting. And there are green shoots that are emerging in the economy. I just hope that this can be sustained in the long run, which is what's required for investors to truly make a good return on their investment. All right. I'm glad we're ending on a high note because it was heading towards post-apocalyptic grimness uh, for a while. But thank you so much, Arun. <laughs> Apologies, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow in Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Before acting on the information on Money FM. Please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.